Hey everyone, welcome back to On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay. And today, we're gonna be talking about Pearl Jam into the grunge saga, the continuation, but now we're on to side B, oh yeah. So before we even really dive deep into Pearl Jam, we have to go all the way back into the mid 80s that comes from this the start of grunge. People consider this really um, the, the very early formation of grunge where it really stemmed from. And then we're gonna talk about Eddie Vedder and we're gonna talk about his background and his childhood and his upbringing, which is really sad. And then we're gonna dive into all the albums of Pearl Jam, all the little ins and outs of Pearl Jam and all the kind of events that have happened. And then we're gonna end it going back to Eddie, where he's at, what he has been doing, and where the band is now. So I have no doubt that this is definitely gonna be a really, really long episode, kind of similar to the Alice in Chains one that I did. Get comfortable, whatever you're doing. Get comfortable, grab a snack, grab a drink, do whatever you gotta do. Sit back, relax, and without further ado, let's get into it. So to kind of understand where Pearl Jam came from, we have to go all the way back to two bands before them. And it starts with the band Green River. Now, Green River formed in the mid-80s, and Green River is really considered the actual pioneers of grunge because no other band before them was doing any of this kind of sound. Obviously, it was the mid-80s. You know, you got bands in the hair metal genre, the glam rock genre that are still really popular and doing their thing. So grunge as a concept wasn't really even formed at this point. It's just looking back on it, the sounds that Green River really produced and came out with really are considered like the foundations for grunge music. Green River was on the Sub Pop label, and Sub Pop, I've talked about them before on my other grunge episodes, and Sub Pop really came about as mainly a Seattle music label. So they were on the Sub Pop label. They had kind of moderate success. Um, They came out with an album or two, and then they came out with some demo tapes, but they weren't really reaching a wide popularity beyond Seattle. It was really just, they were very, very popular within Seattle. And so they broke up in 1987. So they were in the band for a couple years, not too long. And in the band, our founders, partial founders of Pearl Jam, Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament. And so at this point in time, Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament was playing with the band Malfunctions vocalist Andrew Wood. And so you have Andrew Wood coming in, and Andrew Wood is also considered a pioneer of the grunge sound in terms of his vocals and what he was doing. Andrew Wood kind of seeps into the other bands as well. You you have that with Alice in Chains, too, with them creating um, some songs based on Andrew Wood. you got Temple of the Dog coming in later that I'm going to be mentioning. Andrew Wood really kind of was, if you consider, like the face of grunge at the very early formation. So you have Stone Gossard, Jeff Ament, and Andrew Wood, and they come together to form Mother Love Bone. And now Mother Love Bone is also another huge grunge band at this point in time. So they formed around 88. And so between 88 and 89, they were recording music, they were touring, and they got the attention from Polygram Record Label, which is a bigger record label. Mother Love Bone, though, only really put out one studio album. They weren't really doing a whole lot besides that. And the album didn't even come out until four months after Andrew Wood died. Andrew Wood 
was really young when he died. I believe, if my recollection serves me, he was about 24. He was in his early mid-20s when he died of a drug overdose. Their only album that they came out with is called Apple, and that was released four months after Andrew passed away. And he passed away March 1990. And the passing of Andrew Wood really struck the band members to the core. Like, they weren't really... I don't think they were really expecting that to happen. To be honest, it really just shook them to the core. They didn't really know what to do with themselves at that point. Stone Gossard was starting to write material for songs with a harder edge than before because obviously your friend and your band member passes away so suddenly at a young age and no doubt that would mess you up completely. So Stone Gossard started practicing with guitarist Mike McCready at this point in time and Mike McCready was part of a band called Shadow and they had broken up at this point. And so Mike McCready and Stone Gossard were forming a strong friendship. I should mention, since the breakup of Mother Love Bone, the other members of the band weren't really in touch with the other members. They kind of they kind of went their separate ways at this point. So Mike McCready actually encouraged Stone Gossard to reconnect with Jeff Ament. And so when this happened, the three of them now sent out a five-song demo tape to find a singer and a drummer because they were trying to form a band at this point in time. They felt like enough time had kind of gone on to where they wanted to record music again. They wanted to form another band. And so they actually passed the tape on to former Red Hot Chili Peppers drummer Jack Irons. He comes back into play later on with Pearl Jam. Um, They asked him if he wanted to join, and they also told him to pass the demo tape on to any singers that he knew. So he passed on being a drummer for their band at this point in time because I believe he already had prior obligations to another band, but he actually knew Eddie Vedder at this point in time, and he passed the tape on to Eddie Vedder. And Eddie was actually a singer for a San Diego band called Bad Radio. Eddie said that he listened to the tape before he went surfing one day, and the lyrics just kind of came to him. Being in this really inspired mindset, he recorded vocals to the three songs that they sent him, and they would be known as Alive, Once, and Footsteps. And we all know the song Alive, right? We all know that song. So once he recorded the vocals for these songs, he sent the tape back, and they were extremely impressed with his voice. I mean... I would say Eddie has an extremely iconic voice, as I think a lot of the grunge singers do. They're different in their own way, but they kind of still have that edge about them. They were impressed, to say the least, with his vocals, and they flew him up to Seattle for an audition. And within one week, he joined the band. So, But now they needed a drummer. So at this point in time, they added drummer Dave Krusen. They initially called themselves Mookie Blaylock, which is a reference to a basketball player from the New Jersey Mets at this time. Eddie Vedder is a really big basketball fan, um, and so I think that's where that came from. I believe that might have come from him. I mean, you know, they they eventually did change the name because they thought, eh, it's kind of a goofy name. So under the name Mookie Blaylock, they were assigned to Epic Records, but they eventually renamed themselves as Pearl Jam. And their first show as Pearl Jam happened on October 1990 at the Off-Ramp Cafe in Seattle. And they actually went on to open up for Alice in Chains in December of 1990. And they were the opening act on Alice in Chains' facelift tour in 1991. 
And so kind of a funny backstory on how Pearl Jim got their name, according to Eddie, is Eddie has a great grandmother named Pearl, who, according to him, was married to a Native American man who had a special recipe for um, peyote lice jam. And so that's where Pearl Jim came from. But, haha, jokes, in 2006, he said, nah, that's bullshit. <laughs> Sorry, like, that's not even true. That would have been a really, like, cool story if that was actually true, though. But apparently the real story is someone in the band just kind of came up with Pearl, the Pearl part. I believe it was Jeff Amen. He came up with the Pearl part. And then later they settled on Pearl Jam after they attended a Neil Young concert. And Neil Young is really known to kind of create improvisational jams. And jams can last anywhere from like 10, 15, 20 minutes. I mean, you can go on with a jam. So that's kind of where they came up with Pearl Jam. It's not as interesting as like the fake story Eddie came up with, but come on. Peyote Lace Jam, that's so funny. That's a pretty good story, even though it's a fake story. Sorry, fake news. So now we're going to talk about the childhood and the upbringing of Eddie Vedder up until where he meets the rest of what will be known as Pearl Jam. Um, so without further ado, let's kind of jump right into Eddie's backstory. So Eddie was born Edward Lewis Severson III. Oh, so fancy. On December 23rd, 1964. So he's kind of almost a Christmas baby, which is cool. Um, he was born in Evanston, Illinois, to parents Karen Lee Vetter and Edward Lewis Severson Jr. Unfortunately, though, his parents divorced in 1965 when he was only a baby. But his mom remarried a man named Peter Mueller. And so the really sad part about this was Eddie grew up his whole life believing that Peter Mueller was his actual biological father. But that is obviously not the case, right? He just grew up believing and his mother told him that Peter Mueller was his biological father. And this messes him up later in life when he realizes the truth. But so in the mid 70s, the family with Eddie and his three younger half brothers moved to San Diego, California. And at this point in time, he turned to music and surfing as a source of comfort for him to kind of deal with the everyday struggles that he was going through. And I understand that turning to music as a comfort because music is always there for you. Music is so universal and you can always find a song that can relate to what you're going through. Or you can always find a song or an album that just totally blows your mind in the best way possible. So his mom actually gave him a guitar for his 12th birthday. And so that was the whole turning point at that point. He was like, oh, yeah, I got a guitar. And now, now I'm really going for it. He was a really big fan of The Who. The Who probably, I would say, was his top favorite band at this point. But throughout his whole life, actually, he's a really big fan of The Who. One of the comfort albums that he actually really enjoyed a lot was their 1973 album, Quadrophenia. And another album from them that he really liked was their album, Who's Next, which was introduced to him by a babysitter. And yeah, music was just his ultimate comfort and passion for him. He just had such a drive, such a creative mind when it came to music. And at this point in time, the stuff that he was going through, he really turned to music, as most of us do, to help cope with life. Now at this point in time, in his late teens, his mom and his stepfather divorce. This is just such a, well, one of the big things. It was one of the big things in his life that became a turning point was this divorce and him trying to deal with this divorce 
And so he said he was lashing out at this time because obviously when you're young and your parents divorce, it's so difficult for you to process all of this. And especially what he had to go through was just so crazy to me. So his mom and his brothers moved back to Illinois, but Eddie stayed in California in San Diego with his stepfather. And so this is the point where he actually learns the truth about who his father is. He's seen him in his life before when he was young, but he assumed that he was just like a family friend. He didn't think anything of it. And of course, why would he assume otherwise? Because he's been told his whole life that his stepfather is actually his biological father. And so that really messed him up a lot to learn the truth about who his real father is. And another tragedy that struck is actually by the time that Eddie learned of who his real father was, his stepfather died of multiple sclerosis. He had nobody and he was living on his own at age 15 in, in California. His mother and his other family are up in Illinois and he's down there in California practically by himself. Not practically, he is by himself. And so he's struggling to live, to go to school, and to just be a human being every day. So at age 15, he had already moved to live in his own apartment and he was paying bills at age 15. To me, that's just like so mind-blowing. I don't know. It's just crazy to think that at that young age. He already had so much immense responsibility compared to his other peers in school. It's just, he was already being an adult at this point in his life. And so he was working at a drugstore at this point in time to help obviously pay the bills and pay the rent, but he was struggling big time to keep up in school. It was just not really the best situation for him. Eddie told the LA Times at one point um, a story actually that happened to him in school. He resented his school peers and his teachers. He says, quote, I'd fall asleep in class and they'd lecture me about the reality of their classroom. I said one day, you want to see my reality? I opened up my backpack where you usually kept your pencils, but that's where I kept my bills. Electric bills, rent, that was my reality. I don't know. I, I really can't imagine living that life. That's just, that's a lot. And of course, unfortunately, because of this looming pressure of trying to keep in balance a work life and a school life, it was just too much for him. So he ended up dropping out of school. But he later did move back to Illinois with the rest of his family. And that's where he changed his last name from Mueller to Vetter. So back in Illinois in the early 80s, he was working at a job as a waiter and he earned his high school GED, which is nice, um, and he briefly attended community college. But then in 1984, he moved back to San Diego to make a really serious go at his music career. He was like dead set on it. He was like, all right, I'm really going at this music thing. I really think I can make, you know, a serious go at this. And so he moved to San Diego with his longtime girlfriend, Beth Liebling. And so he kept himself busy at this point in time, making some demo tapes at home while working different part-time jobs to pay the rent. And he also played in various bands in the area, getting himself out there as much as he could. One of these bands that he played in was called Indian Style, and it featured drummer Brad Wilk, who would later play in Rage Against the Machine and Audio Slave. In 1988, he became the singer for a band called Bad Radio, which I already mentioned before. And they were a funk rock band, so he was the singer for that band. And what was interesting was he was really shy when he was playing to crowds. He was so determined, though, to be a musician, to be a singer, to be in a band. He eventually had to get over the shyness, though. He was so just shy going on stage. And while he was on stage during these really early concerts, he wore masks 
that consisted of blacked out goggles so that he wouldn't be able to see the audience, which is kind of crazy to me. Like, but that is actually kind of a smart thing to do. Hey, I mean, that's what he did. He did what he had to do to get over his shyness, and so good for him. And so like I mentioned before, Eddie and Jack Irons were already really good friends at this point in time. And again, like I mentioned, Jack gave him the demo tape from the other three guys. Eddie flew up to Seattle, and I already said, like I mentioned, they then formed Mookie Blaylock, and then later formed Pearl Jam. But before they even formed Pearl Jam, and before they necessarily even formed Mookie Blaylock, Temple of the Dog came about. And so now we're going to talk about Temple of the Dog and how all of that came about. So back in Seattle, Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament were working on a music project called Temple of the Dog that was founded by Chris Cornell of Soundgarden. And so like I mentioned before at the beginning, a lot of musicians around the Seattle area around the time of Andrew Wood's death, they were, they were really shocked by this and they were really taken aback by his death. And so a lot of them paid tribute to him in various ways. And Temple of the Dog really was one of the first iterations of a tribute to him. The whole album that they created was in part a tribute to Andrew Wood and that came from the mind of Chris Cornell. And Chris Cornell was really, really good friends with Andrew Wood and he wanted to pay tribute to his good friend in a way that he knew how, which was through music. So prior to forming Temple of the Dog, Chris actually wrote two songs dedicated to Andrew that would later be featured on the album and the songs were called Reach Down and Say Hello to Heaven. So between Stone Gosser, Jethamen, and Chris Cornell, they needed a drummer for the album, and so they brought on Matt Cameron, who was the drummer for Soundgarden, and Mike McCready joined as well, so it was all of them coming together. And so Chris, obviously, he would do the vocals, but at some point along the way, he needed help with those vocals for certain songs, right? And that song is Hunger Strike, which is the really big hit of the album. Eddie was already up there at this point. And so in the studio, Chris was trying to figure out the really low parts for Hunger Strike. And he couldn't really get those notes down. And so Eddie was like, you know, let me help you out there. And so Eddie would sing those low parts. And Chris was like mind blown. He was like, yes, this guy just comes along and he does exactly what I envisioned. Like, this is perfect. And so something else that's really cool is this album was made, produced, written, everything by the band themselves. And so the album, Temple of the Dog, was released on April 16th, 1991 through A&M Records, even though, again, like I said, they made the record, the band did, they made and produced it and mixed it themselves. Hunger Strike was their first single. And it was Eddie's first vocal on a record ever, point blank, period, like, ever. So that's really cool that Eddie's first major contribution was to this, like, supergroup, if you will. Looking, looking back on it, this is a supergroup in the making, so that's really awesome. A quote that Eddie said from the book Grunge is Dead on this album and on the song Hunger Strike is, quote, I really like hearing that song. I feel like I could be real proud of it because one, I didn't write it, and two, it was such a nice way to be ushered into vinyl for the first time. I'm indebted to Chris, Time Eternal, for being invited onto that track. So the album was recorded in just two weeks, and it was produced again by the band at the London Bridge Studios in Seattle. 
But the record, though, wasn't an instant success. It only sold 70,000 copies upon first release, but it only really got really, really popular a couple years later in 1992 when Pearl Jam and Soundgarden already put out their debut albums. And so when the label realized at that point in 1992 that, hey, we have a collaborative album between Pearl Jam and Soundgarden, they really started pushing the album more and they came out with the reissue of the album and they were promoting Hunger Strike alongside the music video. So at this point, it became a really big success. Even though in the beginning it had positive reviews, it just wasn't a really big commercial success until 1992. And it eventually went on to go platinum and sell over a million copies. So now that's Temple of the Dog. Now we're going on to Pearl Jam. What better than to talk about Pearl Jam than with their debut album, 10, which is monumentally, I would say, their most popular album ever. And it really solidified what grunge music means and sounds like at this time. So March of 1991, the band went to London Bridge Studios to record their debut album, 10. The album, 10, was released on August 27th, 1991. And 10 was the name of the album because it was actually the player number for Moogie Blaylock. It was slow to sell at first, but by the second half of 1992, it became a breakthrough success, being certified gold and reaching number two on the Billboard charts. The singles for the album were Alive, Even Flo, and Jeremy. The song Jeremy, though, came about from two different stories. One of them obviously came about from a true story from a 15-year-old boy named Jeremy Wade Dell from Texas. This is a really, really famous story. It's quite sad, actually, learning about Jeremy and his growing up, his backstory, his childhood, where he came from, his struggles with school, with family, with friends. Obviously, Jeremy's life is played out in the video for the name Jeremy, right, in the music video. So Jeremy, in real life, he killed himself in front of his teacher and his classmates on January 8th, 1991. The story goes that on that day, he was late to class and his teacher had him go and get a late slip. So Jeremy walks out, but he doesn't go to the office to get a late slip. He goes into his locker and he pulls out a gun. He walks back into class and he's like to the teacher, miss, I got what I really came for put the gun in his mouth, and he pulled the trigger. And it's absolutely horrifying that that really happened. I mean, poor kid, you know, that's oh, it's so awful. So the band was inspired by that story. They read about it in a newspaper article. But so the second story that inspired Jeremy was an event that actually happened to Eddie when he was back in school. So the story goes from Eddie's point of view is, quote, I actually knew somebody in junior high school in San Diego, California, that did the same thing just about. Didn't take his life, but ended up shooting up an oceanography room. I remember being in the halls and hearing it, and I had actually had altercations with this kid in the past. I was kind of a rebellious fifth grader, and I think we got in fights and stuff. So it's a bit about this kid named Jeremy, and it's also a bit about a kid named Brian that I knew, and I didn't know the song. I think it says a lot. I think it goes somewhere and a lot of people interpret it different ways and it's just been recently that I've been thinking about the true meaning behind it and I hope no one's offended and believe me, I think of Jeremy when I sing it. So I believe at this time too the reception to the song, if I'm remembering correctly, I don't believe his family necessarily was enthralled by this song being so popular about Jeremy's death, but it became a really big hit. 
So the album 10 stayed on the Billboard charts for nearly five years and has become one of the highest selling rock records ever, going 13 times multi-platinum. That is absolute madness. That's crazy. And so with this huge monumental success from the album, Pearl Jam became an integral part of the Seattle grunge scene at that time. However, though, at this time too, the band was getting some negative press. An interesting uh, anecdote from the British music magazine NME said that they were trying to steal money from young alternative kids' pockets. That's such an odd take, isn't that? Like, that's such an odd take. Like, okay, NME, whatever. <laughs> I guess some people were, weren't really understanding what grunge really even was. And so now, it's I believe it's kind of widely known that Kurt Cobain and Eddie Vedder had kind of, um, I wouldn't say a spat with each other, but they had a lot of disagreement. Let's just put it like that. You know, Kurt had said in some interviews that he wasn't a fan of Pearl Jam. He was just saying basically that the album 10 that they came out with wasn't true alternative music because it had so many prominent guitar leads and that they were commercial sellouts. And so, you know, it's obviously known that Kurt Cobain had a had a big issue with bands and musicians that he deemed as sellouts. The big fight, obviously, between Nirvana and Guns N' Roses is the primary example for this. But, you know, I think this fight between Kurt and Pearl Jam was kind of blown a little bit out of proportion because at this time, magazines and interviewers and MTV, they were interviewing Kurt and they were really inquiring about Kurt's drug use and Kurt was so tired of it. He didn't want to talk about his drug use to the world and so he would talk about anything else and it would mainly be bands or albums that he would be listening to at this point in time. And so Pearl Jam, because 10 was so widely popular, just happened to kind of come out of his mouth, right? And so Everyone was kind of eating up Kurt's words, right? The media was really latching on to everything that Kurt had to say. And so that's why I think it was blown way out of proportion. But it's not all bad because later on, Kurt and Eddie and the, the rest of the band Pearl Jam, they reconcile later on and they were on very good terms up until Kurt's death in 1994. The band toured a lot for their album 10 and they became known early on in their career for their really intense live performances, which, uh, yeah, that's kind of an understatement. You watch old concerts of theirs, you see Eddie up on the rafters, and he's, like, climbing stuff, and he's, like, going into the crowd, and, like, oh my god, it's just so intense and crazy, but that's, I think, what we come to love about them. They just don't really care, and they have fun, right? A quote that Eddie said on this time in his life was, quote, Playing music and then getting a shot at making a record and at having an audience and stuff, it's just like an untamed force. But it didn't come from jock mentality. It came from just being let out of the gates. In 1992, Pearl Jam made an appearance on the MTV Unplugged show and on SNL, and they had a slot on the Lollapalooza Festival. And yeah, definitely, their MTV Unplugged show is one of the best as well. And also what they did at this time too was, I mentioned briefly um, on the Alice in Chains podcast that I did, this movie from Cameron Crowe in 1992 called Singles. Pearl Jam contributed to the movie with some songs for the soundtrack. So Pearl Jam contributed the song State of Love and Trust and Breath for the movie. And Jeff Ament, Stone Gossard, and Eddie Vedder appeared in the movie, literally, like they were performing 
as a fake band called Citizen Dick. Yeah, you heard that right. Citizen Dick. <laughs> um, their performances and their parts in the movie were filmed during the time that they were still known as Mookie Blaylock. So now, after the success of their album 10, they were starting to come out with their album called Verses. And this is at the point in time where their really big feud with Ticketmaster was just embroiling. And I gotta say, wow, I had no idea that this was a thing. I didn't know that they were so, so enraged with Ticketmaster. So we're going to get into that in just a moment. So let me just kind of backtrack to when they're starting to do the Versus album. The fast and growing success of the band made them increasingly uncomfortable in the spotlight and in the fame. And a lot of this burden fell on Eddie Vedder. So it was just kind of difficult for them to kind of grapple with this really fast success and the trajectory that they were going in was really, really quick. And they were really struggling to kind of stay grounded and to, and to cope with it all. At this point in time, the band absolutely refused to make music videos for their song Black, despite a lot of pressure from the label. Obviously, the label wants a music video for Black. Black is a big song. They were like, nope. And so they thought that doing music videos took away from the audience and, and the fans and the listeners gathering their own interpretation of the song. A quote from Eddie that came from this point in time on that, on them not doing music videos anymore, is such. Quote, Before music videos came out, you'd listen to a song with headphones on, sitting in a beanbag chair with your eyes closed, and you'd come up with your own visions, these things that came from within. Then all of a sudden, sometimes even the first time you heard a song, it was with these visual images attached, and it robbed you of any form of self-expression. So he was just saying like, before music videos, you would just interpret the song in your own way. You would naturally in your own mind create a version or like a your own music video in your own mind. And so he thought by putting out there a music video for the meaning of a song that it would kind of ruin that. At this point in time, they just were not about making music videos for a really long time. And you know what? I kind of respect them for it. That's a cool thing to do. It's different. So... The band went back into the studio in 1992 to record the Versus album with a lot of pressure to follow up to the successful 10 album. And the album Versus was released on October 9th, 1993. In the first week, the album sold over 900,000 copies and it outperformed all other Billboard Top 10 entries in that week combined. So it's safe to say this album was a really great sophomore album and a follow-up to 10. It was extremely popular. This album set the record for most copies of an album sold in its first week. So there you go. Versus had the singles Daughter, Go, Animal, and Dissonant. And so after the success of Versus, the band really wanted to scale back their media presence. They wanted no more music videos to be made, and they did fewer TV interviews. They were just kind of done. <laughs> they were really over having to be on all the time, having to be, yeah, have, yeah, having to be on all the time and having to have this really strong presence within the community. They were like, mm, no, we want to do our own thing. This tour that started it all with Ticketmaster 
is bonkers, right? The ban capped the sale of ticket prices to stop scalpers from coming in, but so they really were trying hard to make sure that ticket prices weren't being inflated because they cared about their fans and they, they cared about the thought that, you know, that some people had to save up their money to buy a ticket for a show. Not everyone had disposable income and they really considered that when they were doing these tours. And so that's very thoughtful of them. In 1994, or by 1994, the band was in a huge, huge fight with Ticket Distributor Ticketmaster. And so apparently Ticketmaster was adding surcharges to the customer's tickets. The band was heavily committed to keeping the ticket prices down as much as possible, but Ticketmaster refused to waive these extra service charges. And so because Ticketmaster was, and I say still is, the biggest vendor for ticket sales, the band was forced to create their own outdoor stadiums from scratch in rural areas in order to perform. They were like, we are not, we are not working with Ticketmaster. We are not going to venues that have a contract with Ticketmaster. So they created their own uh, makeshift concerts. On June 30th, 1994, there was actually an investigation into Ticketmaster by the U.S. Department of Justice into their practices. The band testified at a subcommittee investigation in Washington, D.C. The band went on to say that Ticketmaster used anti-competitive and monopolistic practices to gouge fans on ticket prices. And so because of their testimony, a bill was passed that required full disclosure to prevent Ticketmaster from hiding extra service fees being piled onto the ticket sales. And so subsequently, because of their boycott of Ticketmaster, they canceled their 1994 tour in protest. I commend them for doing this, but at the same time, this could have ended their career because not a lot of bands were supporting them and not a lot of fans, I think, were having as enjoyable of a time. But hey, I commend them for trying, right? So trying to work around these contracts that big venues had with Ticketmaster, again, the band started hosting charity and benefit concerts at other major venues. And so alongside these stipulations and the fact that the band refused to release singles and music videos, they wanted a totally different arrangement for their music in general. And they were really pushing their music to be put on vinyl at this point. So they were just doing everything different from everybody else in the industry, which again, I mean, I commend them for being different. So now at this point, we're getting into their junior album, their third album called Vitalogy. And we all know Vitalogy. I think we all can picture the Vitalogy album in our minds. We all know it. We all love it, I think. Apparently, the material for the Vitalogy album was actually completed in early 1994 but either a delay from the record company or the band's battle with Ticketmaster prevented the album from being released sooner. On this album, they worked with producer Brendan O'Brien. The first sessions took place in late 1993 in New Orleans, Louisiana, where they recorded songs Tremor Christ and Nothing Man. And then the rest of the album was recorded in 1994 in Seattle and Atlanta, Georgia, finishing up at Bad Animal Studio. The atmosphere of the band at this time, obviously because of the Ticketmaster dispute and them taking a stand against being put through music videos and interviews and trying to deal with the success of the band, a lot of tensions were filling at this point in time. Drummer Dave Abruziz was fired at this point in time, and it was cited the reason for this was because of political differences. He was not 
really into the boycotting of Ticketmaster. He just didn't really understand why they were pushing so hard for it. And I think for other reasons too, he was just kind of let go. And so they bring on Jack Irons. A lot of the songs on the album express the band's pressures of fame and dealing with the loss of privacy. A quote from Eddie at this time is, quote, I'm just totally vulnerable. I'm way too fucking soft for this whole business, this whole trip. I don't have any shell. There's a contradiction there because that's probably why I can write songs that mean something to someone and express some of these things that other people can't necessarily express. The album was actually originally called Life, but was later changed to Vitalogy. And the title Vitalogy came from a 1900s medical book, which was the cover art and in the liner notes. Eddie found the book at a garage sale and thought it would make a really great album cover, which he's not wrong. It's very simple, but it kind of speaks for itself. And of course, Vitalogy means the study of life. And so Vitalogy released on November 22nd, 1994, first on vinyl, selling 34,000 copies. It held the record for the most vinyl sales in one week until Jack White's album Lazaretto came out in 2014. And then two weeks later, on December 6th, it came out on CD and cassette tape. The CD became the second fastest-selling CD in history, selling more than 877,000 copies. So again, another major success of an album. The song Spin the Black Circle, an homage to vinyl records, won a Grammy in 1996 for Best Hard Rock Performance. Notable songs from the album are Better Man, Not For You, Corduroy, and Immortality. Oh, I gotta say, oh, Better Man is one of my favorites. I vividly remember hearing Better Man everywhere on the radio at this point in time. Oh my god. It was one of my favorites as a kid growing up. Better Man was a song originally written by Eddie when he was in high school, actually. And he actually performed the song in his bad radio days. It just wasn't really a song that he actually used in an album until this point in time. It reached number one on the Billboard mainstream rock charts, but never was released as a single, obviously, because they weren't releasing singles at this point. It also reached number two on the modern rock charts. And so again, as they were touring the album in 1995, they were still heavily boycotting Ticketmaster. And a quote from Jeff Amen at this point in time is, quote, We were so hard-headed about the 1995 tour. We had to prove that we could tour on our own, and it pretty much killed us, killed our career. And yeah, like I said before, that could have easily killed their career at that point in time because they took such a hard stance. They're still here today, so obviously it didn't kill their career, but it could have. In June 1995, the band was scheduled to play at San Francisco's Golden Gate Park for 50,000 people. But before the show, Eddie was forced to stay in the hospital due to food poisoning. He left the hospital, though, and attempted to play on, on the stage, which is very commendable, but he only ended up being able to play seven of the 21 songs. And I believe at this point in time, Neil Young was there, and he stepped up to help the band play the rest of the songs. And that same year, the band backed up Neil Young on his album, Mirrorball. I did mention this in my Alice in Chains podcast episode, but during the time of Vitalogy, Mike McCready went into rehab for his own addictions. And when he came out, that's when he formed the band Mad Season. So if you want to know more about Mad Seasons, I talked about it briefly in my Alice in Chains episode. So I'm not going to talk about it here. So, the album Vitalogy was the band's third album to reach multi-platinum status, 
and it received a Grammy nomination for Album of the Year and Best Rock Album in 1996. So this is pretty good. Their first three albums, they're doing really great. They're, they're being successful in the sales, but they're still struggling with Ticketmaster and with the tours and with the singles and no music videos. They were like hard pressed on that. So in mid-1995, Pearl Jam worked again with producer Brendan O'Brien, who they worked with before on Versus and Vitalogy, to come up with the album No Code. So following the Vitalogy tours, the band began to work on No Code in Chicago, again in July 1995. They recorded at the Chicago Recording Company for one week, and then they went to New Orleans to perform some made-up shows from their last tour. The rest of the album was recorded during the first half of 1996 in Seattle at Studio Litho, which was actually a studio owned by Stone Gossard at that time. The songs were then mixed at O'Brien's studio, Southern Tracks, in Atlanta, Georgia. Jeff Ament actually has said that he wasn't made aware of the band recording any material until three days into the sessions, and he wasn't really a big part of the album at all. Jeff actually considered walking out of the band due to Eddie's controlling nature in the creative process for the albums. There wasn't really a whole lot of strong creative juices flowing at this point. I think they were kind of running on empty. They were running on fumes. A lot of tensions in the band were forming. It wasn't really an easy recording session at all. Jeff Amen has said that the band would bring in bits and pieces of songs to Eddie, which would take him a really long time to add the words to. The mood definitely altered around the release of the album, though, due in part to Irons. He urged the band to discuss their problems, which, yeah, hello, if you talk about your problems, most of the time, it'll be fixed. So instead of passive-aggressive bullshit, you actually open up and talk about your problems. And so looking back at making this record, the overall experience that the band says now was mixed, but generally they had a positive takeaway. And the sound of No Code was deliberately different from their other albums, veering towards more experimentation and grunge rock tunes. It stood out with its emphasis on harmony too, with the song Off He Goes, Eastern Influences with the song Who You Are, and Spoken Word with the song I'm Open. The lyrical content of the album talks about issues of spirituality, mortality, and self-examination. The album, though, No Code, was released on August 26, 1997. It received kind of mixed reviews, but some positive reviews. It sold over 360,000 copies in its first week, but it fell short of predictions of at least 535,000 copies. It stayed at number one for two weeks on the charts, and it was Pearl Jam's last album to debut number one on the chart until their album Backspacer released in 2009. But by week six, the album sold 790,000 copies. So it was really slow to burn. It was really slow to gain the sales, but it went there anyway. It was certified platinum, but it was the band's first album to not be certified multi-platinum. Three singles from the album are Who You Are, Hail, and Off He Goes. Who You Are peaked at number 31 on the Billboard Hot 100 and reached number one on the modern rock charts and number five on the mainstream rock charts. The other singles didn't really reach the Billboard Hot 100, but they were both on the modern and mainstream rock charts. And very, very, very little touring was done to promote the album because, again, of their refusal to play Ticketmaster venues. But 
They had a European tour in 1996. So now we're getting on to their album Yield, which I think this was kind of a slight comeback, if you will, from the not-so-great sales of No Code. This was a much more overall positive recording experience for the band at this point. After a short touring period from their last album, the band went back in 1997 to record the album Yield, and it was recorded at Studio Litho and Studio X in Seattle. It was released February 3rd, 1998 on vinyl, CD, cassette, and mini-disc. Mini-disc is the first to be mentioned here, which is kind of funny. Yield was hailed as the band's return to their original rock sound, and it was more of a collaborative effort from the band as opposed to relying on Eddie for lyrics. So Eddie at that point was really the one that would write the songs, but it was more now at this point, moving forward, a much easier process where they would all come together with bits and pieces and they would make it together. Lyrically though, Yield dealt with some of the same themes as No Code, but it was more contemplative in tone. The album actually leaked online in December 1997 at a Syracuse, New York radio station called WKRL-FM. They played an advanced copy of the album, and of course, at this time, you got teenagers at home making mixtapes. I used to do that all the time. So fans at home taped the album, and then at that point, they put the album online. It was kind of the first time that they had to deal with online distribution, which is kind of interesting. But the album sold 358,000 copies during its first week, and it debuted at number two on the Billboard 200 album chart. But funny enough, it was held off at reaching number one by the Titanic soundtrack. And yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You got Celine Dion singing My Heart Will Go On. You got Pearl Jam right underneath that. That is so funny. Uh, but the album has since been certified platinum. So yay, good on them. They're doing it, man. They're just doing it. Two singles came from the album. Given to Fly, which is one of them, entered the Billboard Hot 100 at number 21, and it reached number two on the mainstream rock charts. The other single is called Wishlist, and that one charted number 47 on the Hot 100. This is the first time that the band was open to the idea of doing a music video since 1992, which is big. So this album, Yield, I would say really was a shifting point majorly on all fronts for the band in a positive way. So the band hired an artist to create the music video for the song, Do the Evolution. At the 1999 Grammys, Do the Evolution received a nomination for Best Hard Rock Performance and the music video received a nomination for Best Music Video Short Form. And they promoted the album with tours in Oceania, which is Australia and the countries around Australia, and Northern America in 1998. After their Australian tours, actually, Irons left the band due to dissatisfaction with the touring. He was replaced on what was initially a temporary kind of thing with drummer Matt Cameron. And again, Matt Cameron was from Soundgarden. You know, he thought it was just temporary at first, just to kind of fill in for the shows and things, but he said he learned over 80 songs in two weeks. That's crazy. A quote from Matt Cameron on entering the band is, quote, The guys made me feel real welcome, and it wasn't a struggle to get it musically, but my style was a little bit different, I think, than what they were used to. And they've been through so many drummers, I don't even know if they knew what they wanted. So I just kind of played the way I played, and then eventually we kind of figured out what worked best for the band. 
their North American tours actually marked the forward movement of working with Ticketmaster venues. Wow, big change there. They cited this change in order to better accommodate the concert goers, but they still kept those Ticketmaster venues at a minimum, particularly at stadiums. After this tour, they released their first live album from these tours called Live on Two Legs. And in 1998, I know you guys know this song, the band recorded the song Last Kiss. I didn't know though that it was a cover. I thought it was one of their tunes, but it's actually a cover from the 1960 song by J. Frank Wilson and the Cavaliers. I remember this tune on the radio a lot too. This song really imprinted in my mind as a kid going to school, listening to this song. It's absolutely amazing. But by 1999, the song was put into major rotation around the country on the radio. The band released it publicly as a single in 1999 with all the proceeds from the song going to the aid of refugees from the Kosovo War. The song peaked at number two on the Billboard charts and was the band's highest charting single. Yeah, 100%. I love that song and I still love that song to this very day. All right, so we're about halfway through the podcast. I had to take a bit of a break. (laughs) Had to uh, drink some water for my voice because let me tell you guys, I've never talked so much in one time, in one go, than on this podcast and my voice is not really used to it. So I'm trying my best to make sure I enunciate, to make sure everything I say is understandable. So bear with me. I hope that you guys are enjoying the podcast. And so... Now that I have rehydrated myself, I hope you guys are good too. But now let's get back into the podcast with their following album, Binaural. After the band's Yield tours, the band took a short break before getting back into the studio. Binaural was recorded in late 1999 and early 2000 at Lithos Studio. During the recording sessions, Eddie experiences writer's block, and Mike McCready went back into rehab for an addiction to prescription pills. So now, after following the really successful album that was Yield, now we're getting into a little bit more uh, of some issues now. Even though Eddie had writer's block and Mike McCready went back into rehab, the recording sessions were actually kind of the same as with Yield. So the members, again, it was more of a collaborative effort, and that's how it would be from here on out. They hired Chad Blake to be the producer for this album, And he's known for his use of binaural recordings that uses two microphones to create a 3D stereophonic sound. And this technique was used on a few of the songs on the album, such as the song Of The Girl. Even though the album was initially mixed with Blake at Sunset Sound Factory in LA, the band wasn't really happy how it was turning out. Blake's work complemented the slower tracks of the album a lot more than the faster tracks. For the heavier tunes, the band brought back O'Brien to mix those heavier songs. So this album's kind of a bit of a mix, right? You got this weird experimental binaural sound with some slower songs, and then you got more heavier tunes. And this is the first album to feature the new drummer, Matt Cameron, into the band. So Eddie, unable to really cure himself of his writer's block at this point, one day, just kind of out and about, he saw a ukulele, and he wrote the song, Soon Forget, with this ukulele, instead of using his usual guitar. So a quote from Eddie on the album's theme and pacing is such, quote, We'd rather challenge our fans and make them listen to our songs than give them something that's easy to digest. There is a lot of music out there, and that is very easy to digest, but we never wanted to be part of it. So that's fair. I mean, he's aware 
that the music that they make sometimes isn't necessarily the easiest to digest for fans. This is just a point of the band to really experiment and kind of do what they want to do just to kind of get it out of their system. So I have no problem with that. The lyrical content of this album is a lot more somber compared to their last album. A quote from Eddie on the lyrical theme of social criticism is, as such, quote, I think what everyone's looking for, you know, is freedom. That's part of being comfortable in your own skin. I know I had a problem with being told what to do and had a problem with being mentally and physically constricted. All of humanity is searching for freedom, and I think it's important to know when you have it too. The album cover is a modified Hubble Space Telescope image of the planetary nebula known as the Hourglass Nebula. A quote from Jeff on the artwork is, quote, The reason that we went with Chad Blake is because he provides an amazing atmosphere to songs, so I think we wanted the artwork to represent that. One of the themes that we've been exploring is just realizing that in the big scheme of things, even the music that we make when we come together, no matter how powerful it is, it's still pretty minuscule. I think for me, the whole space theme has a lot to do with scale. You know, you look at some of those pictures and there are 13 light years and 4 inches in that picture. So Binaural was released on May 16th, 2000 to very positive reviews. It debuted at number 2 on the Billboard 200 and it was certified gold, and this was the only Pearl Jam album to not receive a platinum status. The album sold 226,000 copies during its first week of its release. Two singles were released from this album. Nothing As It Seems was one of them, and it was issued on April 11th, and was number 49 on the Billboard Hot 100, and it reached number 3 on the mainstream rock charts. The single Light Years placed on the mainstream and modern rock charts. So now we're getting into an event that happened that is quite tragic, and I was amazed to learn this because I never heard about this before. So it's called the Roskilde Tragedy. The band promoted the album, Binaural, with a European and North American tour. The tour started on May 23, 2000 in Lisbon, Portugal, and the European tour had 26 shows, the final show of which was on June 30, 2000. And this was where the tragedy known as the Roskilde tragedy happened. Pearl Jam and many other bands were performing at the Roskilde Festival in Denmark. They hit the stage at about 10.30pm. There were a lot of people in the crowd, about 50,000, and they were waiting to see Pearl Jam come out. And so what was happening is a mosh pit was starting to form in the crowd during Pearl Jam's performance. A security guard in attendance was trying to help pull people to safety out of this mosh pit. They were saying before, though, that the Roskilde Festival was very safe and they never had any issues before, and this was really their first time. So the security guard, as he was trying to pull these people out to safety, he noticed that something was really, really wrong. There were a few girls that were stuck in this mosh pit that were getting trampled on. And that, oh my god. So absolutely horrible. That has to be one of the worst things to happen to someone in the manner of death. Getting suffocated and, and, and trampled on by people. The security guard who saw this was happening stated that it was hard for anyone, including the band, to see what was really happening, I guess, during this mosh pit. 
maybe because it was really late at night, it was hard to see. So that's fair enough. You just don't really know. A huge momentum from the swaying of the crowd led to people falling really hard on the clay pavement beneath them. So, ugh, I just, ugh, can you even imagine that? Getting trampled like that? Oh my gosh. A quote from an audience member who was there at the front said this, quote, It was tight even before the music started. People were stumbling left and right. Half an hour in, I knew it was life and death. I couldn't lift my arms. It was difficult to breathe. I lifted my head to feel clinging hair. I was scared for my life. Another audience member stated that people were trying to squeeze their way to the front by putting their hands on the shoulders of others in the crowd and pushing their way forward. At about 11.15 p.m., the security guard turned to his security chief in the pit and asked her to stop the music, saying, I think people are dead. So Pearl Jam at this point was just about to finish their song Daughter when Eddie got the message from the security guards. Eddie stopped the music and he addressed the audience. And I heard this audio. It's on YouTube. You can listen to it if you feel like you want to listen to it. Uh, He was very desperate in his pleas with the audience. He was asking them to take three big steps back and just to keep, you know, taking steps back and being careful and, you know, really asking them, like, for me, please, guys, can you do it for me? Like, please, you know, look out for other people. So he seemed calm in the first few minutes of just asking them to step back. But when he caught word that people might have died, that was when he became a bit frantic. He was like, Uh, okay, please, I'm begging you guys. Like, he was saying, I can't, like, I don't think I can handle knowing that people might have gotten hurt. So he was like, please just take, like, three steps back and keep going back. So that was sad to hear him. That's, that's really, he was so concerned. And uh, and of course you would be concerned. So once the audience had kind of calmed down and they listened to Eddie and they were taking their steps back and they cleared the way, It was very, very obvious that there were piles of bodies on the ground. Unfortunately, though, the message got to the band too late. Nine people in the crowd died at the scene, and another three people were treated at a local hospital, and 25 others received minor injuries. The big screens were still going on. You could see everything from the big screens, and you could see Eddie was deeply deeply disturbed and visibly upset. He was like crying. Oh my God. I mean, yeah, I would be too. In this statement that the band put out, Eddie wrote this statement, um, but obviously, you know, it's from the band, but Eddie, Eddie wrote this. It's just, it breaks my heart, but this is, this is a beautiful statement that, that they made. So the statement reads as follows. This is so painful. I think we're waiting for someone to wake us and say it was just a horrible nightmare. And there were absolutely no words to express our anguish in regards to the parents and loved ones of these precious lives that were lost. We have not yet been told what actually occurred, but it seemed random and sickeningly quick. It doesn't make sense. When you agree to play at a festival of this size and reputation, it is impossible to imagine such a heart-wrenching scenario. Our lives will never be the same. But we know that is nothing compared to the grief of the families and friends of those involved. It is so tragic. There are no words. Devastated Pearl Jam. 
And so at this point, obviously visibly disturbed by what happened, the group canceled their next two concerts. They're like, we're done. So last year, Eddie actually spoke to Lily Cornell, who's the daughter of Chris Cornell. Um, he, he spoke to her in an interview, and he recalled the event of this time. He said that Lily had just been born that same day, right before the band went on stage. So they were happy, you know, when they were playing this big festival, things were going well. And then they were also devastated by this tragedy at the same time. So it's like a weird juxtaposition they had to experience. And Eddie also said that Pete Townsend really, really saved him at this point in time because he was unconsolable, Eddie was. Like I mentioned, Eddie really likes The Who a lot and he was friends and is good friends with Pete Townsend. And uh, Pete called up Eddie to kind of console him because he was unconsolable. He was thinking he couldn't handle this. But actually, Pete had been through a similar experience with The Who. During The Who's December 1979 show in Cincinnati, where a similar kind of stampede and people, you know, died, happened. And so Pete was just telling him that you can handle this. You can get through this just fine. You, you know, you'll be all right. And so a month after the end of their European tour, the band started their North American tour with their first show in Virginia Beach, Virginia on August 3rd. But you know what? At this time, the band really considered disbanding, but they they didn't, obviously. But it was it was close to that point, you know. But they said that the North American tour that followed actually helped the band to start playing again. So that's nice. So now after the Ross Gilda tragedy and after their album release of Binaural, the band started working on their other album called Riot Act. Producer Adam Casper was brought in to help the band record their seventh album. The album was recorded in two sessions in February and April 2002 in Studio X in Seattle, and it was mixed again by Brendan O'Brien. Riot Act was the first album of theirs to feature Kenneth Gasper, he's also known as Boom, on keyboards for the song Love Boat Captain. And this song, Love Boat Captain, was actually a tribute to the nine victims of the Ross Gilda tragedy. Riot Act leans more experimental in sound, bringing in folk elements into their music. And the lyrics were more direct, especially in the response to the political climate following 9-11 at this time. So Pearl Jam and Eddie, they're definitely known for being very vocal about their political views. So they have no problem of sneaking in little political jabs in their music. The band tried to have the leading themes on the album be predominantly about love, loss, and struggle to make a difference because of the difficulties following 9-11 and the Ruskill, the tragedy. Eddie has said that the lyrics in Riot Act represented his state of mind at the time, being optimistic yet disillusioned and hopeful yet frustrated. But the album was released on November 12, 2002. It reached number 5 on the Billboard 200 album chart, and it sold over 166,000 copies during its first week. And the album was also certified gold. The international response to Riot Act was much more well-received. The album topped the charts in Australia going platinum there, and it also went number two in Italy and New Zealand, and it went number three in Norway and number four in Canada. The three singles from the album are I Am Mine, Save You, and Love Boat Captain. I Am Mine went to number 43 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart and number 6 on the Modern Rock charts. 
save you place on the modern and mainstream rock charts. So Pearl Jam promoted this album with tours in mainly Australia, Japan, and North America in 2003, but the immense trauma from the Rustfield disaster made them really weary about playing festivals and open floor venues. A lot of the North American shows were politically charged in nature because obviously this, you know, is following, you know, what happened in 2001. It was so politically charged in nature that some of the audience was booing at Pearl Jam for their vocal, vocal distrust of then-President Bush. I'm not going deep into the politics, but this is just what it is with the band, right? So it's also known that Eddie brought a mask of George Bush to wear on stage during some of the shows. So the years 2003 to 2005, they didn't really release any albums in this time. They were releasing a couple of other albums and they were kind of more so chilling out, doing a couple of tours here and there. In June 2003, the band announced that they would be leaving Epic Records following the end of their contract with the label. Their release without a label was the single Man of Honor in partnership with Amazon. Movie director Tim Burton actually approached the band and asked them if they would write an original song for his new movie at the time, Big Fish. And that's a good movie. If you haven't seen that movie, I would check it out. It's a great movie. After the band watched an early screening of the film, the band then wrote the song Man of Honor and gave this to Burton to use in the film. And I didn't know that, but apparently the song is used on the end credits, which I would think, if you're hiring Pearl Jam to write a song for your movie, wouldn't you use it in the actual movie instead of the end credits? Like, what's up with that? I don't know. The band then released Lost Dogs, which is a two-disc collection of B-sides and rarities. And they released Live at the Garden, which is a DVD featuring the band's July 8, 2003 concert at Madison Square Garden through Epic Records in November of 2003. And in 2004, they released another live album, which is called Live at the Benaroya Hall through a one-album deal with BMG. 2004 was also the year that the band first allowed a portion of one of their songs to be played on a TV show. Their song Yellow Lead Better was featured in the final episode of the TV show Friends. And later in 2004, Epic Records also released the album Rearview Mirror, which is their greatest hits from 1991 to 2003. And so that release officially marked the end of their contract with Epic Records. Pearl Jam then went on a cross-country Canadian tour in September 2005. After this tour, the band opened for the Rolling Stones concert in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and they played a couple of small shows here and there after this point in time. In October 2nd, 2005, they played a benefit concert to help raise money for Hurricane Katrina relief at the House of Blues in Chicago. I believe that was broadcasted on TV. I remember that, actually. And then on November 22nd, 2005, the band embarked on its first ever Latin America tour. So now we're getting into Pearl Jam's self-titled album, you know, with the avocado on the front. Record producer Clive Davis announced in February 2006 that Pearl Jam would be joining his label, J Records. This will be the band's eighth studio album, and it was released on May 2, 2006. Critics have raved that the band has gotten back to their earlier sound with this album in particular. Mike McCready compared this album to the likes of their Versus album. And there are, you know, socio-political issues that were really current undertones within the album. The song Worldwide Suicide, a song that criticized the Iraq War, 
was released as a single and atop the Billboard Modern Rock chart. It was the band's first single on that chart since their 1996 song, Who You Are. And to support the album, the band went on its 2006 world tour. This is where they toured North America, Australia, and a lot of Europe. The North American tour included three two-night stands opening for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. They also served as headliners for the Leeds and Reading Music Festivals, despite saying that they wouldn't play festivals again. But I think it was at this point in time, I think enough time had passed between the Ross Gilda tragedy and now to where they feel comfortable again. Eddie started these shows with an emotional plea to the crowd to look after each other. In 2007, the band also headlined the Lollapalooza Festival in Grant Park on August 5th. And in June 2008, Pearl Jam headlines for the Bonnaroo Music Festival. And in July that year, they performed on the VH1 tribute to The Who alongside the Foo Fighters and the Flaming Lips. So that kind of really was what the band was doing between 2003 and 2005. They were just kind of doing a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But so now... We're getting into where they do some reissues, and then they produce their albums Backspacer, Lightning Bolt, and Gigaton. So on March 2009, reissues of the 10 album included a remastering and some added remixes of the songs. And their 1992 MTV Unplugged show was made into a DVD. Their album Backspacer was released on September 20th, 2009. It debuted at number one on the Billboard music charts. It sold over 600,000 copies, which is quite a lot as of 2013. Predominant sound of this album is kind of cited as pop and new wave inspired, which is quite different for them. The band didn't re-sign with J Records and they released this album on their own record label called Monkey Wrench Records. Their album Lightning Bolt released October 15th, 2013, and it sold 166,000 copies. After this point, it became Pearl Jam's fifth album to reach number one on the Billboard music charts. At the 2015 Grammys, the album won the award for Best Recording Package. And then their album, Gigaton, which is their most recent album, was released on March 27, 2020. In September, the band announced their MTV Unplugged show would be released on vinyl and CD for the first time. And then recently, as this year in May 2021, they announced the release of a digital collection of nearly 200 concerts dating from the 2000s to 2013. It's accessible to any members of the Pearl Jam 10 Club, which is their fan club. I believe you pay a fee, a monthly fee, depending on the kind of content that you want. So if you're part of their fan club online, that's where you would be able to get it from. But I'm assuming... Maybe it's uploaded to YouTube or something. I'm, I'm assuming maybe you could find it somewhere. And so that's all she wrote for Pearl Jam up at this point in time. No other information's been, been said about Pearl Jam up until now. So that's kind of the full story of Pearl Jam. We're just going to end it, though, with Eddie Vedder. As we kind of started a little with Eddie, now we're going to end with Eddie. And talk about more about what he's been doing, what he's been up to... Eddie has contributed his own songs on several movie soundtracks, such as Dead Man Walking, I Am Sam, A Broke Down Melody, Body of War, and Rain Over Me. He also contributed to the 2007 film Into the Wild, and Into the Wild is a true story based on the story of Chris McCandless um, in the 90s. It's also based on a book by John Krakauer. If you don't know Into the Wild, I highly recommend either watching the movie or reading the book. He's very stripped back on this album. It's just kind of very soft, kind of acoustic, easy numbers. 
and he fits it perfectly. So he provided the music for the movie with songs written just for this movie. The soundtrack was released on September 18th, 2007 through J Records. It features mostly original songs with a couple of covers. The covers are Society and Hard Sun. I love the song Society. I didn't know that was a cover either, but oof, it's a great song that is. He won a Golden Globe in 2008 for the song Guaranteed from the movie. The song also received a nomination at the 2008 Grammys for Best Song Written for a Motion Picture, Television, or Other Visual Media. He promoted the Into the Wild soundtrack on his first ever solo tour in 2008 going around Canada and the U.S. And so that's technically his first solo album, if you'll consider it a solo album. His second solo album is called Ukulele Songs, and this was released on May 11th, 2011. And it's a collection of original songs performed on ukulele. I haven't listened to it, to be honest, but oof, I really want to listen to it. I think it's going to be a good one. He also made a couple of cameos in films, such as the 1996 grunge documentary Hype, the 2003 Ramones documentary called End of the Century, The Story of the Ramones, the 2007 movie Walk Hard, The Dewey Cox Story, which is such a good film, the 2007 Tom Petty documentary Running Down a Dream, the 2008 political documentary Slacker Uprising, and the 2009 Howard Zinn documentary The People Speak. And so I think a fact that is, I think, mostly known by people for the remake of the film A Star is Born, which stars Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga, um, Bradley Cooper had taken influence from Eddie Vedder for his character Jackson Maine. And if you didn't know, Bradley Cooper wrote, produced, directed, and starred in the movie. So he really took a lot of inspiration for his character from Eddie Vedder. He hung out with Eddie for a couple of days to get tips from him about the character and how to act, how to talk, how to perform. And so like I kind of touched on before, Eddie himself is really very outspoken with his social issues. He's very vocal about his social views on women's rights, animal rights, abortion. He's never really shied away from publicly voicing his views either. On their 1992 MTV Unplugged show, at one point during the show, Eddie stood up on his chair and he wrote pro-choice on his arm in Magic Marker. And Pearl Jam played at a series of concerts for the 2004 Vote for Change tour, in which they spoke about their advocacy of John Kerry in the presidential election. In his spare time, he's an active surfer. Like I mentioned, from his childhood, he really took on surfing as part of a comfort for him. And he's actually very present in raising awareness for certain surfing-related conservation efforts, such as the Surfrider Foundation. And he also shows his support for environmental conservation and showcases his activism within Earth First Tattoo. And Earth First, I didn't know this, is an environmental advocacy group that was founded in 1980. And so their logo is of a monkey wrench being crossed over by a stone tomahawk. And so that's the tattoo that he has. So he's very with it and he's not afraid to speak about these things and to show these things. And a bit of a, another kind of little fun fact is back when Eddie was living in the basement of his Pearl Jam manager, Kelly Curtis, when he was homeless in the 90s, he was roommates with Jerry Cantrell of Alice in Chains. And by proxy, he was also friends with Lane Staley. And he wrote a song called 42002 on the night that he found out about Lane's death, because that was when Lane was said to have died. But of course, and I spoke about this in my Alice in Chains podcast too, but he actually died on April 5th. 
And so, in 1994, he married his longtime girlfriend, Beth Liebling. Liebling was actually the bass player for an experimental band at the time called Hovercraft. They were together for a long time, and then the couple divorced in September of 2000. And then, later on in life, on September 18th, 2010, he married Jill McCormick, who was another longtime girlfriend who he had been dating since 2000. And the couple has two daughters, Olivia, born in 2004, and Harper, born in 2008. And something that I found recently in the last few days, Pearl Jam did an interview with Steve Gleason. And Steve Gleason is a former NFL player. And so Steve Gleason has ALS. He interviewed Pearl Jam a couple of years ago in 2017. He pulled Eddie Vedder aside for a specific kind of um, like 15 or so minute interview with Eddie. He asks Eddie about his upbringing and about his father and not knowing his biological father. Eddie actually talks about wishing he could have known his father. He would have hoped that his father would have loved him and that he think, you know, he did love him and he was proud of him. And he said that he somehow received tapes of his father making music in the early 70s. And he said he liked them. They were cool. They were interesting. And so he was just very emotional about the whole thing. You know, it's it still is a tragic thing to this day for Eddie to deal with the fact that he didn't know his biological father like that. And that's kind of always haunted him. I don't really like to leave it on kind of a, a sad note like that, but that's kind of it. That's kind of really the majority of it all. You know, during the pandemic, Eddie's just been chilling out, making funny videos. Um, you know, the band Pearl Jam, they're a really nice group of people from the interviews that I've watched for this podcast to get, you know, information and research done. They're very, very good guys with level heads. And oh, another point I wanted to make too. Obviously, Mike McCready had his own issues with drug addiction, but the rest of the band really actively try to be vehemently against drug use. And so they really, really were trying over the years to not get involved like that. They really, really made it a point to be clean as possible. And so that's all she wrote for Pearl Jam. That's kind of the end of what this episode is. A lot of interesting information, a lot of ups, a lot of downs, a lot of sadness, a lot of happiness, so much success. And so I think, honestly, that's a great place to leave it off for now. I'll be coming back next week with another episode for this grunge series, so stay tuned for that. And I hope you enjoyed this podcast episode, and I will see you guys next week. Have an awesome day, and I'll see you guys later. Bye, guys.